Hi, it's Tierney, host of Tierney Talks. You're about to listen to a very special episode of the show recorded live in the For Your Art booth at Freeze Los Angeles 2020. Freeze is a global art fair, and 2020 was the second year it took place on the Paramount Pictures Studio backlot here in LA. I'm grateful For Your Art invited me to host the very first telethon for your art at Freeze. It was a magical long weekend full of conversations with artists, writers, curators, and other art world figures. I'm so pleased to partner with For Your Art to present this series of talks about mutual support, community building, individual artistic practice, and our beloved creative culture here in LA. I hope you enjoy. Today's guests include Jennifer Moon, Jessica Yellen, Emily Siegel, Candace Williams, Andrew Maxwell, Michael Woodcock and Ezra Woods of Pretend Plants and Flowers, Gabriela Sanchez, Jory Finkel, and Mandy Harris-Williams. Hi, welcome back to Telethon for Your Art. I'm Tierney Finster, and I am here with Jennifer Moon, a Los Angeles-based artist, a part of the Kyopo Collective. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, um, how long have you lived in LA, or how long have you been an artist in Los Angeles? Okay. Um, I guess I consider this one project when I was an undergrad at UCLA to be like the starting point yeah, of me the being first. an artist, and that was in 1993. Um, I grew up in Orange County, uh, so not too far from here, but also very different <laughs> from yeah. LA, um, and came to LA in 91 to go to school and then went to grad school in uh, Art UCLA. Center. Okay, at Art, Art Center. Center, and then just has stayed in LA since. Amazing. Yeah. And was there a specific sort of focus or discipline within your art a scholarship that you focused on? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, I, my understanding of art before going to UCLA was very traditional. It was yeah. like, you know, drawing and painting and like making things like very representational. And so when I went to UCLA and I went to the um, uh, Helter Skelter show, mm-hmm. at, in, I think it was like in 92 at mm-hmm. the Mocha Geffen, it like totally blew my mind. And like, I was like, oh, this can be art. <laughs> you, what did you experience there that was specifically like transformative? Um, it was like, I think it was like, like the installation works. Um, and also this notion of like this kind of like uh, blurring of like art and life. And so like, mm-hmm. I think that like a lot of my projects after that kind of focus on what I call life art. Yeah. Um, like taking from my kind of personal life experiences and like merging it with art. And, Amazing. Yeah. And what's an example of uh, a project that sort of merges that for you, whether it's earlier in your career or more recent? Yeah. So I, my most recent show at uh, Commonwealth and Council uh, was called Familial Technologies. Mm-hmm. And it, so it was a collaboration with my family, my mom, my dad, and my brother. Mm-hmm. And I was really, I'm really interested in like uh, trauma and like shame. Yeah. And uh, there's like, a lot of familiar <laughs> <The> underlying uh, 
decision makers of the world. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of it, you know, comes from family, you yeah. know, and I'm also interested in the relationship between family and institutions and the state and how it's like kind of like this fractal kind of like uh, repetitive kind of like not knowing the scale. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But like oh, I, yeah. I um, ended up doing a project where me and my family went to like therapy with a therapist and then we made avatars on this virtual world and met on this virtual world in addition to going to therapy. And it was like in this virtual world that like all the secrets were revealed. Exposing. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible. It's so cool. Yeah. And were the avatars like really uh, representational? Like were they like humans or I mean I don't know? Was it like a symbol or a character? Uh, it was. Uh, they were they were human form, like okay. humanoid form. And it was on this uh, app called Avakin Life. Okay. I mean, my mom wanted to be a dragon, but like that. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Totally. Her name was Puppy Dragon. Oh, That's her screen name. A sweet dragon. <laughs> That's so cool. How did that project uh, like inform your family's dynamic? You know, henceforth. Um, it, we're still going to family therapy. Cool. Um, and it's like a slow process of kind of like. Um, learning to listen to each other and like learning to kind of take accountability. Um, I, I mean, I think it's helped. So that's like something that I think about art to do. Like art is like a tool for me to learn how to live. And so like that's life so art. So beautiful. So it's like, yeah, so I'm like trying to use art in that way. Um, and like same with Gyopo now, I feel like after yeah. talking with you about how I, I feel nervous about talking about Gyopo, I'm yeah, like, oh, maybe we it. can like bring Gyopo in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Gyopo. Because it relates to your life. Yeah, yeah. Gyopo is like a, it's like a coalition, which is, I guess, I mean, we called it a coalition, but it's like a, now it's a nonprofit of like a diasporic Korean artists and curators and writers and art professionals. Um, and we do like programming, um, like free programming that, that, hopes to like address or not hopes but it like we work to kind of like address like um, issues within contemporary art and like uh, social justice and um, like intergenerational and cross-cultural kind of uh, dialogues yeah that's beautiful and um, I know it seems like in terms of like that dialogue and being like faces and unified within contributing to the dialogue of like arts in LA. Uh, will you tell me a little bit about um, this item that was in the news last year uh, regarding a mural at, um, was it Robert Kennedy Community School? Will you tell us a little bit about the way like Kyobo kind of uh, offered a perspective or got engaged uh, in regards to that project? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was, it was specifically the Bo Stanton mural that was, uh, that some some people within the community around the school, and it was started by this one older like grandfather um, who who felt like the rays of the the mural kind of represented the Japanese imperial flag, um, and the reason why I think. Uh, why I was interested in it and um, Gyopo became interested in it was to kind of like shift the conversation from like censorship, like this kind of binary of like censorship or like uh, freedom of speech to uh, kind of delving into uh, like the traumas in a way that that felt like we can locate maybe like what systems were at play, you know, totally. so it's, yeah, to move it from this binary and to kind of like have a more uh, generative, Nuanced yeah. and generative look. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I mean, for context, that mural was, it's in Koreatown, right? It's in the school. So it's on oh, okay. the campus of the, uh, the ARF, 
K. Wait, is that what it's called? Robert Kennedy. Yeah, Robert F. Kennedy. Yeah, Kennedy yeah, yeah. School, I think. Yeah, so it's in the it's on the campus, um, but it, it kind of like receded in. But okay. it's visible off of one street, and so the. Uh, uh, Kisuk is the person who started the petition. Yeah. Like he would walk from his office to like get lunch or something and yeah. see it, and that's how he saw it. Yeah, and it's like just providing context for um, some of our viewers. It's like these. It's kind of like from one perspective, the mural was enacted without a consciousness or without an awareness of the potentially triggering or traumatic nature of the imagery it evoked, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then the conversation when there was like a petition about that mural, then the conversation kind of became that binary that you mentioned, which is like, if you censor this, that, or if you don't like this mural, or if you call for it to be altered or to come down, then you're, uh, you know, promoting censorship in the art world, which of course is something that's very easy to be like, you know, we don't want to be censored, but I really like how you, I mean, it's a tricky and like powerful position to be in to say, hey, we're not, censorship is more, or like, it's sort of a, like washing this with a different tone to just immediately call this censorship because we're really asking for like, accountability or sensitivity. Yeah, and conversations. I mean, we, we spoke with Bo Stanton, we spoke with Kisuk, we spoke with uh, LAUSD, and they they then organized meetings with uh, with Bo Stanton and the organization that, that kind of organized the murals and then and invited like uh, these, like Kisuk and um, there's another organization that was also petitioning against it. But like what I, what what I'm really interested in, and I think what Gopo is really interested in, is to like just like how do we have how can we like have a discussion about these very uh, contentious or disparate kind of positions on something that doesn't keep it locked in the binary, but can move it to something mm-hmm. that is uh, that's a p- that opens up possibilities and it's generative and enriching for everybody, you know, like uh, for the future of these types of projects and for art in LA in general. Yeah, yeah, and it and it turned out really great. I mean, like Bo was like really really open and 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 like uh, is like proposing this uh this a new mural working with so cool yeah not like a new one but like it's a it's like it's gonna still have the original and then build upon it um and so it's i i believe right now it's in the process of um within lausd kind of doing outreach to the communities to get like uh potential imagery to put on the mural and that's so yeah and then it'll work with the students and stuff like that i think that's a really nice example of criticism not having to end in this contentious like one or the other option and that it can be a conversation that continues and grows like you say yeah i'll remember that when i make a faux pas <laughs> i know it's not a, not so easy with my family <laughs> we so easily lock into like oh. like old you know these kind of learned oh, me modes too. <laughs> and then i'm like really as i age i'm realizing how even if that mode is like feels safe within a family dynamic that like anger or reactivity or tent whatever that unfortunately it will seep into your personal oh life, God. your work life, your art, and that's like why I think it's beautiful that you bring up this idea of life art and our art being practices that help us exist in the world better. I mean, totally. yeah, no, that's the reason kind of why I started the family thing because I would see it come up in my relationships, like my personal relationships. Yeah, yeah. You're like this. Let me spit out this bitterness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I would see myself, and I couldn't stop myself. You know, it's like getting in that totally like, <laughs> mode. And it's also beautiful that your family is so collaborative and that they're available to that. I'm sure um, 
yeah, it's just, it takes spe- take special, like, love and openness to engage. I think when you're a child or family member is an artist, not everyone is as exposing or transparent as some of us. So. Yeah, no, it's, it's really incredible that they agreed to do it. Like, my parents are, like, 80. And I love it. <laughs> the hardest thing was to, like, teach them how to... The tech? Like, yes, like, how to make the avatar and maneuver in the... That's what impressed world. me, because I'm like, my parents have literally never owned a computer, and I'm 28 years old, so I don't know, like, they're not that old. They should use it, but we're old school craftsmen in the valley. <laughs> As we wrap up... Um, and it's a pretty broad question, but when you think about the community of all sorts of different uh, Korean artists in Los Angeles, is there something in terms of representation or resources that you would love to see transform, change, uh, evolve? Oh, that's a that's a that's a hard question. <laughs> okay, within representation of like Korean Korean identities or like yeah, or just resources Koreanism. for uh-huh. uh, the exhibition or support or like nurturing of new generations of Korean artists. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can give like the answer that probably Gyopo wants me to give, which is like go to our booth and like buy the Anika <laughs> Yee perfume and the Gala Pores Kim okay. print because that supports the free programming. Like where like Gyopo is really committed to like free programs, free programming, and like. I'm on the programming committee and like uh, like I think very deeply about like the programming that we offer yeah um, so that it is something that is uh, hopefully representative of a diverse kind of Korean uh, diasporic population but also like working to like uh, reach out like do some co- like co- cross-cultural kind mm-hmm. of exchanges like we're really interested in that so it doesn't just stay within like the Korean identity yeah like, because like, Los yeah. Angeles I mean I don't know like growing up in LA public schools there's just like everybody <laughs> and uh, definitely Korean Americans are a huge 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 community in LA and it's just so beautiful to see the kind of collectivity and different the variety of voices within one community you know um, I want people to check out your booth And so the perfume is a collaboration with Opening Ceremony. So I believe there are some bottles there if you go to Opening Ceremony before you come to Freeze or instead of. Um, And as you mentioned, that some of the funds from that will go towards supporting your free public programming. Yeah, all of the funds will go to that. Okay, amazing. I love that it's free. Um, It just makes it so much more accessible to people. Yeah. And as we wrap up, uh, For Your Art is asking everybody to sort of rephrase this question in your answer which is like my name is and I support or I'm a member of okay well my okay so my name is Jennifer Moon and I support breaching beyond the 5% which is breaching beyond the binary and hierarchies and capital and I support any kind of actions that's towards that thank you so much We're live. Welcome back to Telethon for Your Art. My name is Tierney Finster, and I'm here in the For Your Art booth at Freeze Los Angeles 2020. It's our second day of the fair, the first day open for the public, so we're all having fun. I'm so excited to be here with Jessica Yellen. Thanks for having me. This of is course. great. Of course. Jessica is a political journalist. I'm very obsessed that you were a chief correspondent in the White House um, and also now run your own kind of news platform via Instagram. Is that accurate? Yeah, well said. (laughs) And also an author. 
uh, Savage News. I'm really excited to talk about all of this. Um, so part of your kind of ethos in sharing the news on Instagram is this idea of news, not noise. Um, how would you describe that concept or what does it mean to you? For me, it's this idea that we're always bombarded by so much information these days in news, in culture, in every space. And it's hard for people to distill what really matters and what doesn't. And especially in the news space, because we have busy days and it's so anxiety inducing. Sometimes when it's so much is coming out, you just want to avoid it. And it's so common. Right? You're just like, I can't even. So the idea is to kind of, I pick out from all the noise of the day what really mattered, why it mattered. I explain it. I break it down really clearly. And I kind of give you permission to ignore what I consider the noisy stuff, like the president's tweets, for example. Yes, yeah, stuff that takes up a lot of space in the news business. <laughs> and brain space, right. you know, and makes us anxious. And really, does it impact our lives or change us that much? You know, I really resonate with that because, so in conversations with my mother, for example, she thinks that I suddenly dropped out of caring about politics, which couldn't be less true, but it's because I don't watch CNN and MSNBC all day like she does, you Did know? Did you used to, used to? I did more often because I had aspirations to be a political journalist. Oh, um, and when did that turn off? When I went to the Democratic National Convention uh, with President Obama and Clinton in 2008. Uh -huh. I was in high school and just the nature of the experience was extremely wonderful but I sort of felt like I, I was always kind of like media or politics or I don't know just exploring these ideas and something about that experience was like you know, I'm already pretty familiar with Hollywood and media. Maybe this is like More my path. Right. Yeah, I, get it. I, um, get it. I was there. It was quite a scene that year. It was a yeah. scene, and it, I mean, that was my first time taking a flight alone. So I mean, oh, it was iconic. Baby. I had my Obama tea. <laughs> Where you know. did you grow up? I grew up in the San Fernando Valley okay. here in You're LA. You're a local girl, yeah. Yeah, uh, and you too. You grew up in LA. I did. I grew up in um, well at the beach, Marina del Rey, in the Hollywood Hills, and in Santa Monica all over the place. Yeah, good spots. I relate. Yeah, amazing spots. Um, and so when you're discerning the news over the noise in any given day, what are some of the things you look for or like key elements in deciding what actually matters? You ask good questions. Thank you. You could be a political journalist still. <laughs> but you're having Crossing my here. fingers. I mean, I never get I'm to not saying from places no. like this, right? It's amazing. Um, you know, what it, I really, it's a good question. The filter I use is, um, is this going to impact my audience's life. So for example, corruption at the Department of Homeland uh, of Health and Human Services is not as relevant as what's happening to your health care. In other words, what touches you most closely at home is one. Two is, is it a mega story that's going to continue in the news and you need to onboard people to knowing about it now so they feel informed. I always found that, you know, the New York Times will do like a four-page story on Iran the day we do something. And if you don't read that four-page story, you're out of the loop. For the rest of the news cycle. For that whole, yeah, and it could go, like, for months. So what do they need to know to really onboard to understanding? And then that means they're, in my view, more likely to engage and keep following it. Totally. I mean, that's quite the task at hand, right? Because I'm sure your community of followers uh, has all sorts of experiences and backgrounds, and it's... I love it when people, I like how you define things and don't take for granted what people know or don't. That's so sweet. One of my big critiques of the system is like, 
A lot of times you turn on the news and it feels like you're entering a conversation 10 minutes after it started. So true. You're like, what is that word? Who's that person they're talking about? Why is everyone so Never upset? mind, switch. You know, right? Like, and then you're out. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, you're not dumb as a viewer if you don't know all those things. You have your own job in life to know about, yeah. right? It's our job to make you feel like you get it. And then we can launch into the madness around it totally. if you want. So that's one of the things is to like break down the jargon. What is a tariff? Like for example, yeah. dull, and but it's an added tax on imported goods. Like yeah. just say it. And I also think that what we're getting at here is context as well. And I feel that um, especially with like the variety of sourcing and outlets and like methods of receiving information in today's like constant news cycle, they're tends to be a lack of context based totally. on, what is it, like political affiliation or just like the mode of the platform? Right, like for example, right now, everybody, there's this big story about how four prosecutors resigned from this case, the Roger Stone case, yeah. around one of President Trump's associates who got sent to jail. Um, and they resigned because the Department of Justice, their boss, overruled them on how long a sentence he should get. If you don't follow that stuff, you don't know, is that a big deal or not? When the context on that is, it's never happened before. Like, I, the, all of the prosecutors you talk to say they've never seen anything like this in life. Yeah. So knowing the context makes you understand. Oh, something's really going more of a major. Off. Yeah. <laughs> One of my big dilemmas, though, is how much like straight up politics to cover. Because sometimes I find when I cover like an election, yeah, people just don't want to hear it. It's almost like they've oversaturated or something. I, I'm not, my, I don't know, because I think some of it is they just, it sounds angry and like conflicty, and they just don't want more anxiety. And maybe when there's one candidate against another, it'll be different. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, also there's so much emotions and perspective that go into a lot of the ways we experience the news, and um, I feel like that obviously makes sense to a certain degree, but I also feel like people might be curious about the election, but might not be curious about all of these like potentially manipulative emotional cues that right. get tied to it. Right. Is it difficult or challenging ever to, I mean, I know you're plenty experienced, but when you're distilling or sharing the news, um, like let's say it's about an election or a yeah. primary, um, do you feel like it's hard to be nonpartisan. I mean, because it does feel so much news is partisan in a way. So it's it's a complicated answer because I was at CNN for so long and at ABC before that, NBC, and you learn how to never put your feelings into it. And everybody, you know, reporters will pretend they don't have feelings. Of course you have feelings. Yeah. And when you're covering it, it's not always like, I like this person's policies over that. It's like their campaign is nice, their campaign is brutal to deal with, and you totally. can't, right? How do you? I might like their values more, right. but they're so annoying. They're so annoying, or they're so mean to me, whatever. Yeah. But, so you have to develop the muscle to not put that into the piece. The challenging add on to that right now is President Trump is so, um, I mean, he traffics in untruths, right? He, yeah. Uh, you might, everybody has a different point of view on what you should call it. You know, unreality. Not fact-based, lies, lies. lies <laughs> not whatever you want to say. Story. Facts aren't a big deal. And so if you're fact-based, you're going to challenge. challenge that, and it looks like you're being consistently oppositional. Is that partisan, or is that just holding your ground as a journalist? Is that true? Yeah. And truth, That's right? It's really interesting. So, I mean, how you view that depends on where you come from. Yeah. 
well, I like the way you do it. <laughs> I mean, my position is you always hold to the facts and the truth and people can see in that what they in want. In that way. And um, even if it's not one of the major things you're speaking about, like I do see you weighing in on the election, like the primary race. Is there any one thing or a couplet of things that you feel like you want Americans to understand better as we experience this primary season and look forward to the election? Well, I think thematically there's um, kind of an identity crisis in the Democratic Party, right? Do they want yeah. to be super progressive and energize the far left base and get everyone else to come along? Or do they want to run to the middle and try to woo some disappointed Trump supporters? Right. right. And so that's kind of the conflict you're seeing playing out that's in the primary. Um, the, the thing is, there's one strong progressive who's consolidating his support, Bernie Sanders, and there's a food fight on the other side with all the moderates divvying yeah. up the rest. So they're much weaker as a result. Totally. Um, but in terms of what really matters, I really think it's the issues. Like, the Affordable Care Act is being challenged in court by the Trump administration. If you're concerned about pre-existing conditions, we should be talking more about that instead totally. of, like, what are the poll numbers? That's so true. I mean, it seems like a, uh, I don't want to say easier, but it seems like a more emotional and resonant way to pull people in. The challenge is how do you tell an abstract story about healthcare lawsuit, I guess. Right. When you have tweets that are outrageous and make people's brains go buzz. Firing off. And right. It's interesting, too, because I think... Um, I really appreciate the distillation you offer and the focus because I think um, like the emerging generation and Gen Z, they have such an amazingly uh, insightful like way of look, or at least a lot of younger yeah. people I notice have a really amazing way of looking at reality and really being able to vet like sourcing and motives right. more so than I think previous generations. One of the yeah. sorry, no, one please. of the interesting things, absolutely, like there's. There's a natural critical eye yeah. that younger generations have. Um, one of the things I find challenging about it is there's also a blanket mistrust. Yeah. Like, I, I come at this with the point of view that you're manipulating me, I don't believe you, you gotta prove it to me you're not. Yeah. And um, that all politicians are always lying, that they always do it for the wrong reasons. And some of that I would like to dial back if Dial possible. back on. I mean, I feel like the type of journalism, or perhaps all journalism, I don't know, that you uh, offer to the world is such an act of public service. Oh, you're sweet. It's so Thanks. true. And I'm just wondering, as you mentioned, this idea of dialing back the blanket cynicism around um, political figures, is public service something that grounds you in your own work? Oh, I love you asking that. Um, I could have like a much nicer life if I would just get a job and make money and like have health care and you know like that. Come here and buy art. Buy, and come here and buy art and have like great clothes. And I do this because I just feel called to do it. Like I think that there's an audience that needs to be informed and wants to be informed and doesn't have another place that's explaining it to them in the yeah. way they get it. And if I can do more to build that, we can reach all these people who are sort of on the sidelines but don't want to be. We just have to give them an access point to enter. So cool. And I want to help be that. So um, people should follow me at Jessica yes. Yellen. At Jessica Yellen. Is it Y-E-L-L-I-N? Yes. It's just my Amazing. name. Amazing. And how does your community of followers, you mentioned them and some of their like interests or takes a bit, but how does having this like really strong community at your disposal um, sort of shape or inform the way that you approach sharing news to them? 
you know, sometimes it's so hard to know because a lo- some people are super busy DMing me all the time. <laughs> but it's not hard to, like, is that representative of everyone? Of everyone. You know? Knows. So I do have insights. Like, my audience is overwhelmingly female and young. And so I try to think of topics <laughs> that skew to that, yeah. kind of their perspective and what they care about. My favorite thing is also asking them questions. Right. And hearing, and hearing the, their take. Like, totally. You know, there'll be stories that are like the Mueller report was yeah. all over the news. And they're like, eh, tell me more about climate change. Yeah, it's super interesting. I'm like, yeah, I feel you. Right? You're like, eh, right? Or um, teachers, people are super interested in why teachers are underpaid. Aren't underpaid. Oh, right. right? I mean, it's just nuts. Right? <laughs> we were speaking yesterday with someone about arts education in Los Angeles, which isn't the exact same issue, but when we're here and think about all the entertainment and culture that LA creates, although I personally had a really beautiful arts education experience at a LAUSD school, it's not necessarily common, and it just seems like with all this talent here and resources. It should be, there should be an easy way to direct resources in. Totally. Yeah, I know. And our system's just complicated, and that's why you need to empower people to figure it out and participate. And have invested interest. Right? And that's how it changes. Yeah, and I think... Um, Regardless of anyone's one political affiliation over the other, I do think that among um, like youthful generations and just the country in general, that the conversations happening right now, although they can be overwhelming and hard to dissect, a lot of really exciting new looks at this current system are emerging, and I think it's going to make people more and more engaged as we move forward. I hope you're right. I love hearing that. Okay, good. I hope it's true. (laughs) Well, we're going to wrap up soon. I have a couple more days of interviews, so I was just wondering if you have any interviewing advice for me, and I'm also curious, uh, you've had such a fabulous experience interviewing all sorts of amazing people. Is there any one interview situation that you felt was like the most high pressure or like oh. nerve wracking? Well, um, to answer the second question yeah. first, I interviewed President Obama in the middle of his reelect, and that was um, what happens is you see the two of us on camera, but what you don't see is that around the room at all points there's like nine I see a friend of mine yes. 19 to 20 people all lined up watching Watch and listening and like listening intently. and then they're like got things on and like talking and you're like oh this is you just feel so under the, the gun spot. but I was super prepared so it was one of those things where you feel locked in and it was like tuned good. in yeah. strapped in <laughs> and he's an interesting person to do an interview with because he knows he knows what you're doing. He sees where you're going, and you have a good dynamic. You can play with yeah. it. That's beautiful. Um, and I think you ask fantastic questions. Thank you so much. You're curious, and you share about yourself, too, in the middle of an interview, which is the most interesting thing for an audience. And it also cool. elicits more from your interview subject. That's something that I play with the balance of, because I feel like originally with a lot of journalism, I, you know, I, well, a lot of the time, still with certain magazine pieces or topics, I definitely omit myself. But the goal of my podcast was to kind of ground my own personality within this world because... You have to. That's what makes an audience connect with you. It's also what makes this work. And it's finding that balance. As long as you're aware of it, you're not going to overshare. 
Thank you so much. And one more thing, yeah. I'm looking for partners and brand sponsors. And so if anybody we need is partners, out there. we need brand sponsors. <laughs> out there. Do you have amazing taste and care about the future of democracy and free information? At Jessica Yellen. At Jessica Yellen, please support. Um, we're You're gonna awesome. wrap up. If you Thank could you. just uh, like rephrase the question in your answer, we're collecting this for Bettina. Um, it'll be like, I'm Tierney Finster and I support, or I'm Jessica Yellen and I'm a member of just something that you want to amplify. Uh, Hi, I'm Jessica Yellen and I'm for democratizing information so that people who are on the sidelines feel informed and want to get involved and participate. You can follow me at Jessica Yellen where I help people do that. Amazing. She sure helps me. Everyone, please go follow Jessica and we'll be back with more of the telethon soon. Welcome back to the Telethon for Your Art. My name is Tierney Finster, and we're in the For Your Arts booth with Emily Siegel. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy you're here. Emily is an amazing writer, artist, information producer extraordinaire. <laughs> <laughs> and you've recently kind of relocated to L.A., right? Yep, a little bit more than a month ago. First month in. How are you finding it? I love it. I think that LA has the most amazing combination of magic and scamminess of anywhere I've ever been, and I'm really thriving off that Venn diagram. Magic and scamminess is how I landed this opportunity here in the For Your Art booth, <laughs> so I'm really happy to hear <laughs> that. You're, but this idea of magic actually keeps coming up in when we talk about LA. Like, I don't know if it's because of the aspiration of a lot of people that move here, but there is this like dreaminess that I think maybe is harder for people to tap into or feel community around in other cities. I think that's true. It's probably why some people think LA people are delusional. <laughs> it's so funny that you say that because I was having small talk last night at a different art fair with someone and I referred to myself as a newly delusional LA bimbo. Yeah. And I think it really struck a nerve and really made the person I was talking to worry if they were a delusional LA bimbo. <laughs> I'm so happy to be two brunette bimbos here with you in LA. <laughs> Same. <laughs> do you feel so much of um, what you've shared with the world has to do with this predictive cultural forecasting, uh, trend setting, trend forecasting, do you feel like your magic and psychic powers lend itself to that aspect of your creativity? That is such an amazing question. I think that intuition is obviously at the heart of what I do and that is of course connected to magic as well. And sometimes I wish that I was allowed to frame some of the ideas that I had more in that realm Context. and less like it's less like pseudoscientific, which is how a lot of business people want to read it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm seeking actively more audiences that will let me be in a blurrier mode. And respect it. And yeah. respect it and take it in the right, take it in the right spirit. Because really like the thing in my heart that as a 10 year old, like made me realize that people were going to want to wear Paisley in two years, isn't really going to predict like predict a geopolitical shift in a really accurate way yeah um but it can pick up on pieces of those things totally and it is kind of ridiculous so it's important for me to actively Keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like you're ever in a position where 
you know, like Paisley or beyond, where there's an example of something that's just feeling like personally resonant or intuitive about the way you see culture that are you ever in a position to then gather data or facts to support that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I always am trying to mix in a like critical or journalistic or like lazily academic bent with the things that I pick up on and a more academic. <laughs> like hardly pick up on in like a more sort of like personal or ambient way. Yeah. Um, but I often find it's my friends who help marry it with like cold hard data um, and I'm really grateful for that. I'll never forget you um, presenting Normcore in <laughs> London because when I saw you um, present there I was just so activated at this as like a realm of being in the world or like approached to information it was just like a really synchronistic and like cozy moment so I'm really grateful for that I love what you do. Oh that is so sweet there's actually an amazing moment in the video of that talk of you in the audience just staring with these like Intent. saucer plate eyes and I really <laughs> cherish that moment. Oh my god. I Do you like watching when you do like a talk like this would you be like or perhaps they're like are you amped to tune in when it comes out or do you like to give it a little bit of time or? Lately, I've been trying to not really like rechew or watch or pick over any of the things that I've been speaking yeah. on because it can introduce a sort of like paranoid meta quality in my thinking that isn't good. But it can be really, really sweet with more time to revisit that exactly. stuff. Like this event we're speaking about now, I, when it was like release the videos on YouTube and stuff even though there's part of me that is like this ambitious like Capricorn vibes where I'm like look at I spoke here I actually couldn't bring myself to watch it for like four years or something and Nico who's here he was speaking we're presenting together and I feel like his attitude was kind of like what's not what's the matter with you but just like why are you tripping <laughs> I feel differently with things that I write or like a text transcript. To I'm like so, provide that. Sometimes I really like to sort of indulgently reread over and over again and like feel my own voice flood myself. But with my image or my spoken oh, voice, yeah. sometimes it's too cringy. Too authentic. <laughs> <laughs> or you get all like stuck on things like your bronzer or whatever Literally, and it's not productive. It's like an amazing talk but then like one dot of mascara <laughs> has gone here and nobody else is looking but I'm like oh this is ruined so thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> I love your writing. I love that you have a new cover out right now. Is that accurate with Selena Gomez? Oh yeah I just did that. It was actually something that felt like a really serendipitous kind of welcome to LA yeah. moment although we didn't get to have that meeting at the restaurant and she orders a Caesar salad LA celebrity journalism no anchovies moment. yeah <laughs> no which is probably good because I always think of when MIA's life got ruined by reporting on her ordering truffle fries at the restaurant oh because she's too rich it was like made her too <laughs> bougie even though she wasn't actually the one who ordered it so I would never want to expose the darling Those. Selena Gomez to that type of yeah. scrutiny um but yeah, we had an awesome conversation. She was super lovely, um, manages to pull off the very paradoxical feat of being a superstar and feel it, making you feel like you've known her forever, which depending on how old you are, you kind of have. have like, yeah. I she feel like I warm. grew up with her. Yeah. And it was um, this 
kind of interesting format in Dazed where they had sourced all of these different questions from boldface names and I was like the you. Yeah, the arbiter. I was like the late night host just asking her. Yeah. Um, which was really fun and she was excited to hear and some of them were kind of fluffy and some were more serious and yeah. then we also got to chat and um, I really respect the way that she's been so open about mental health stuff. Yeah. And we had a really, really good schmooze about that, which is not in the piece, but yeah. it is. It's always like that. <laughs> it was cool. Yeah. It was really cool. The the stuff that has not made its way into a lot of my favorite, or like celebrity profiles I've written is like, I just cherish it in my Google Docs. <laughs> <laughs> What's your fave celebrity profile you've ever done? So... Interesting question. Um, I just profiled Julia Fox right before Uncut Gems released. And so I'll tell you the story because it's not in the piece. We meet on Sunset Boulevard, and I am sitting in a little cafe outside watching her on the street, like Mm. get out of the car. She's in like Calvin Klein black sweat outfit that's like a little bit tattered. Like it's not like it wasn't like (laughs) fancy athleisure, which I loved. It was like proper athleisure. And then she was unfortunately sobbing and she had really she had just lost her best friend. And she said, Let's I wanna talk to you, this is my job. And she was extremely vulnerable and so she we switched pretty quickly into the like nuts and bolts of the you know, the talking points. But then I asked her, like, do you just swallow and pretend, like, what you experienced this morning? Like, how are you navigating that? And she was like, absolutely not. It's on top of me right now. It'll be with me for the rest of my life. And this today is the first day of that. And I just thought, like, she had the bewitching power. And to share that moment, I mean, I'm not somebody who... You know, tyranny talks, but I don't really like when in moments of crisis, I'm very or just negative feeling. I'm very reclusive or mm. private. I don't even know how to express some of that to my close friends. So the fact that she was like speaking so plainly without pretending was really cool. And it seems like without sensationalizing either. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Like it sounds like a really authentic moment that's intense. Yeah. I like it when. I like it when the person that I'm interviewing or profiling has a really real life. This is like my own standard, but like a really real life before their fame, especially Mm. among actors. There's this like culture is very LA too of like you kind of diminish what happened before or you kind of just pretend you're this like fresh ingenue. And I just love it when people have like textured life experience where I just, I don't know if I relate to it more so I just like, I'm like more excited for them because they've had options and they've experienced a lot, you know she had a fashion brand and she had art shows and now she's like, I'm a movie star and this feels pretty good (laughs) I'm like, cross my fingers (laughs) Right, and it's not like I was born yesterday Yeah, which I think even when that's not true is something that we like, get told or whatever Yeah Um, more on your own writing what has the experience of creating your own book been like well it is still in the incubator but it is written Um, it's a novel called Mercury Retrograde which also fits into the larger mood board of this LA moment although not intentionally it actually began in a sort of nascent form in an essay that I wrote for Eflux Journal in 2015 yes I remember 
And that was trying to look at the rise of the colloquial belief in Mercury retrograde, yeah. even or especially among people who did, said they didn't believe in astrology, Yeah, which I was very fascinated by. And instead of looking at astrology as this cheesy thing, I wanted to dig into the motivation of people to process their anxiety and uncertainty through that lens. lens. And personally, it came up because I was having a really bad time getting dressed, and yeah. I felt like I was having this like fashion meltdown. And ordinarily, that's supposed to happen if you're looking at it like through the traditional astrology lens under Venus retrograding, right. but it was happening under Mercury, like beauty and vanity. And instead, it was happening under Mercury retrograding. And so that helped me make the connection to the idea of fashion as an information system and everything I'd been observing with fast fashion and the sort of rise of platform dominance and the way that clothes function on the internet being more important in a way than how they function in real life. Oh, and the fast fashion aspect there where you're like, we just get it for a pick and then we're done. Totally. And it might not even exist in the case of like streetwear, which hadn't exactly popped off in the same way that it has now when I wrote that essay. And so it helped me open up a metaphorical space where Mercury retrograde was a way of looking at our whole information economy being in constant glitch and people being like, oh my God, fuck, it's Mercury retrograde. My email just went to the wrong place as a way of almost mourning the glitches and loss that we don't have language for in an innovation-obsessed society. It's amazing. And then the novel grew out of my attempt to put together a bunch of essays that I wrote while I was working with K-Hole, my old collective. And I wanted to make a narrative spine that would link them together. And when I started working on it, that narrative spine became the book. And the essay parts, in certain cases, are in there. But it's really a narrative and it's fiction. The protagonist shares my name in biography, but... It's definitely not real what happens in the book. It's kind of like a mockumentary of my life in a way. Mockumentary is the genre closest to my heart, so I can't wait even more. And you'll see um, I collaged slash stole slash plagiarized one of your tweets as dialogue. Yes. (laughs) Honored. And I'm sure you're not the first. So (laughs) Definitely not the last. I'm so glad you came by today. It's so fun. And I feel like Mercury Retrograde is about to begin. So Freeze was awfully bold to host this fair right now. (laughs) Very true. Thank you, Emily. Um, Before we wrap up, For Your Art is collecting this like kind of content where you kind of say, you know, your name and you say that you support or that you're a member of something. If you want to look at Jess and say it, you can, you know, I'm Tierney Finster and I support LA artists or whatever. I'm Emily Siegel and I support reading. Yes. You've given me the best book recommendation. I have more. I got, just got I a want more, list. please. Like, That's like really good. I definitely have been reading. I mean, I, you know, I grew up reading like crazy and the last, year it's really been like back on track so i need that okay i got you girl thank you emily thank you Tammy. so fun can we take a pic with me Welcome back. My name is Tierney Finster, host of Tierney Talks. I'm here in the For Your Art booth at Freeze Los Angeles 2020. I'm really excited to be here with Candice Williams. 
Hi. Artist, <laughs> writer, community educator. I don't know what you want to call yourself, but it seems like you're a very busy person with a lot of creativity happening. Oh, <laughs> thank you. So sweet. So your name came up yesterday with uh, Hans Ulrich speaking about the brutally early event tomorrow morning. For people to who might be considering what to do tomorrow, um, can you talk a little bit about what you have planned? Yeah, so I guess Brutally Early is like a very kind of casual gathering that Hans and um, Klaus have been doing for a couple years now. Uh, I have a friend who's done one of them, Patrick Balaga. I think we'll just, Simone Fortis performing at 8 a.m., so I'm going to probably try to, I'm going to try to be there for that very early. <laughs> and, uh, and I think I'm going to talk around 9. Um, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to present. But I feel like it'll be a response to Simone and a response to um, kind of like choreography and embodying somehow like like um, or the the role of choreography and performance in like the contemporary moment to like transform a lot of social scripts and like um, yeah just sort of dig into what sort of force scripts and force sort of like social contracts are like. Um, floating around in the ether today or right yeah. now or something and just trying to think or think through or process that. I know Rodney McMillan will be really cool. exciting to be like around in terms of that and yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that I'm excited amazing. about that. Yeah. I feel like this idea of people just embodiment and movement and performance yeah. as an opportunity for like generative transformation feels really exciting. It's kind of a theme right here at Freeze too, I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's kind of the zeitgeist of the moment right now. I feel like there's a lot of practices that are pointing towards social choreographies and different sort of like movements and migrations and traumas and like really bringing them, you know, to a con like a, an individual point or something yeah. of expression is really important to the political right now. So Definitely. I think it's also a really, without having my data behind this, I feel like it's also <laughs> just a really uh, interesting like way of engaging people who might like look at a painting or look at a piece of visual art in that way um, and maybe feel like they don't have the language or like the expertise or something about that form but so much of this like social choreography and performance uses like well literally movement that we're all like used to or yeah, you know like behaviors and like yeah. learned, like traditional behaviors and like traditional dance and social dance I think definitely are like somehow always fused to our political selves so I feel like right now is a moment to like really look at that fusion and like I mean I'm thinking about it too because I'm kind of like a self-taught and have a, like a self-built interest in dance or something so I yeah. didn't really do have a dance like a formal dance education yeah but when I think about what dance looks like in like two dimensions or something it's mm -hmm. like it is a lot of like blueprints like notations kind of like right. social spaces mm -hmm. um yeah, and different kind of like social caches, image banks. I don't know. There's like a so lot of cool. yeah, scents. You know, yeah. even like sounds right. for sure. Scent, yeah, so they, human. Like, yeah, lights and like uh, yeah. I don't know. So thinking about, I'm thinking about that a lot. Amazing. So I feel like I'll just kind of riff on that maybe. I wish. <laughs> Although I'm happy to be here. I wish. I think you're ready to riff on that. I uh, wish I didn't have to be here brutally early tomorrow, oh or else God. I would be there. Oh dang. <laughs> um, yeah. For people who want to check it out, it's at Mocha downtown 8 a.m. and I believe it goes through like 11 or noon so yeah. people who aren't brutally brutally early you still have a shot <laughs> early yeah I have to I'm gonna host um, a boiler room tonight with um, Leela Weinrub it's like Leela invited some friends and guests um, yeah to host a thing tonight so I'm gonna 
be brutally late and brutally early. Yeah. Oh, you're gonna be up. Let's just say that. Yeah, should be fun. Yeah. This will be fun. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious about like your context um, as an artist and creator. Have you always seen yourself as an artist? Did you grow up like hoping to pursue a career or a life in the arts? Yeah, I think I think that was like the earliest thing I've thought my, of myself as maybe. That's um, a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And um, in your experience in Los Angeles, is there anything specific about the community of artists here that you feel deeply connected to or that inspires or ignites you the most? Um, yeah, I mean, L.A. has been like amazing for for. Um, it's really interesting conversations around what exactly community is. Like, I feel like coming back to the States, I came back to the States and moved directly from Germany to L.A. after, like, um, 12 years abroad, you know, almost oh, 14 wow. years abroad. So, yeah, definitely coming back here and figuring out what community is and, like, where community feels, like, inherent, where community feels urgent, where community feels... Um, uh, and also, yeah, where community feels like like structured around things that aren't inherently like care, you know, like uh, right. like where community feels like weak or where community feels false or where community feels like it doesn't originate in like a like a almost like a familial structure or something. Right. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. In that regard, I have to shout out like so many homies in LA, like yeah. who are you know people who I really feel are building community and really building um, like new kinds of support, like new yeah. kinds of infrastructure, like. Um, I definitely think of Emilian Kashiro and Sisters yes. with Invoices. Uh, Mandy Harris Williams is now director of programming at the Women's Center for Creative Work. She's like doing amazing stuff there. Um, Alima Lee and like uh, like yeah like so a lot of amazing. people around Kelsey Lou are definitely like kind of forming a lot of creative yeah. uh, capital within our community. Bapari and like. Um, yeah. Pierre from Nocesso, like Pierre Davis. I mean, all icons. All icons, LA yeah. Icons exactly. So there's just like so many. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and some people like from Berlin that like I've always gotten to, you know, be around and create with like Josh Johnson, who like is from here. Yeah. Uh, meeting Leela in New York and like she's also from here. Yeah. And then Noah Davis, like, you know, the underground Amazing. is like has just been such a yeah, so, like, there's a lot of, like, really intense, I think, dissection of community, and in that, like, a lot of really important new sort of, like, structures and models for community coming out of, like, um, especially, like, the black L.A. art scene right yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> literally, like, it's everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, a lot of our impressions or uh, expectations of the fine art world or the fine art market aren't always centered around care and yeah. perhaps hardly ever yeah totally so it feels really good to participate and to just also support from afar some of these different experiences happening in LA like with Amelian who's coming up as a guest Sunday oh, cool, yeah. Mandy's coming by later today like it just makes me really happy to see people uh, come to LA from other cities and create exciting movements and transform like what I call home you know where I've always lived here so it's just to have like these influxes of amazing artists transforms the city I don't need to go anywhere else because yeah. <laughs> it's gonna always be new um I want to talk to you about Cassandra Press um obviously I'm like a writer and more than that I just like fetishize words and paper and so same. your readers <laughs> like the way that you compile information thematically and curate these amazing reads um in a format that 
I don't know, like maybe people who, you know, have the chance to study really formally get to experience this kind of amazing like reader form, but I don't always feel like people outside of education get that chance. Do you feel the same? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's kind of a, a real reason or motivation for making the readers actually is kind of to like, um, yeah, to like put uh, sources and sites and references from my own work into uh, yeah, into more of a public dialogue or into like, like to kind of like also release like um, specific articles and kinds of information from like behind paywalls and firewalls for, Academic you know, that are journals. exactly that are actually more like one. Yeah, I mean, sharing, you know, sharing sort of like site passwords and stuff like that, I feel like is also a really important sort of community it's so building. Necessary. Yeah, especially right now where like, yeah, the, the conversation around how public education is destructive actually to like creative minds and like yeah. um, the lack of higher education in this country and like so there's like a real lack, lack of, of truthful or contextual right, like any kind of contextual educational yeah and so yeah yeah just being able to poke little holes in that for like small communities has been really important amazing and i know um i believe to our left here at acid free people can check out uh some of these yeah. publications so i hope they do <laughs> yeah there's a bunch of cassandra readers over in the next booth for um, folks who haven't had a chance to have get, get their hands on a reader yet, is there any specific one or a most recent one to just kind of give a sense of the themes or you know kind of nature of some of these uh, publications? Um, yeah, I could talk a lot about that actually. There's like the last three readers I just released them. I'll try to block your. Oh no! Yeah, perfect. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, pressure, but amazing. <laughs> the last three readers. Um, they, they were kind of commissioned by Printed Matter for a solo show. So Cassandra just had a first solo show at Printed Matter New York, which like focused on all the readers. Um, shout out to Taylor Doran, who makes also the um, artist editions, and, and I work with her, Cassandra. Um, yeah, she, so, so like, yeah, we kind of, we got to focus on the readers and like do a solo show of the press. And for that occasion, I made three new ones. And they are like a really kind of weird circular argument, I realized, or like a circular argument that I have to give a lot of credit to Manuel um, Arturo Abreu for like an article called Is Cannibalizing or Is Theorizing Cannibalism Ethical? Mm. For like kind of helping me see a bit through like a spiral of thinking. Like so one is on cannibalism, blackface and minstrelsy and mm -hmm. uh, like a lot of texts around yeah, the performance of blackface, like historically, and how mm -hmm. that like uh, performance is one that was adopted by both abolitionists and by racists to oh, wow. um, yeah to support different uh, ideologies agendas, and yeah. agendas. So, and then on minstrelsy is like in terms of like a reaction to that performance, embodiment of that performance for like economic means, and then cannibalism. Right. So the forced performance of like so many different kind of corpse economies and like those. So that that was unlocking a lot of the things I was thinking about with like performances and scripts. But then we also made a reader on the Chitlin Circuit, which is like the network of um, kind of like pre um, or post reconstruction pre like segregation mm -hmm. Jim Crow um, like sort of, sort of like FUBU spaces like for us bias spaces like um, black run spaces that black artists could perform in and like also almost like a touring circuit for like emerging black artists who are like oh, musicians amazing. dancers um, theater makers yeah. uh, cinematographers uh, directors actors so that kind of like also became tied into all those forced labor performances or, or thinking about forced labor performances and kind of freeing up, like for me it did the historical work of freeing up a lot of agency around those performances, just like looking into actual um, performers' lives and performers' journeys right. and like dealing with, you know, shameful or, or feeling shameful about poverty or growing up in poverty or certain like ways that even um, 
yeah, like like there's certain performances. Yeah, just dealing with sort of like all the different levels of different black performance and like the personal repercussions for dealing with those performances through the lives of actors and like yeah. touring musicians, you know, and like seeing the Chitlin circuit continue now. Um, I just ran across an essay. Oh, I'll forget her name, but um, the author, author wrote an essay. An author wrote an essay called "Gracefully Policing the Tyler Perry Phenomenon." So just coming mm-hmm. back to Manuel, you know, and thinking about how ethical it is or not to sort of like theorize around black performance was like a really important Amazing. thing to consider or yeah. start considering like the morality or the ethical like impact of then theorizing around these kinds of forced performances almost um, for every but like for everyone not, it's like yeah. a question like of course you know i better really think about what i'm going to be doing <laughs> if i'm theorizing around black performance right. but also for amazing critics and mm-hmm. people who share certain identities it's still a set of ethical questions and totally. curiosities totally and then the, the third reader was on two-dimensional design which like for me, actually, it should have been re. I think it should have been retitled. Or it wasn't appropriately titled. It should have been something like, like the implications of primitivism or something like that. Yeah. Like what? Like just really digesting what modernism and modernity owes to primitivism and sort of like that same, the the sort of the eye or the gaze that witnesses like these sort of scripted or forced black performances and like appropriates or evaluates or constantly categorizes or then performs like a conceptual cannibalism around or, you know, like, yeah. so that was like really important to think through uh, in terms of image making right now. Yeah, but, image so, making, yeah. I mean, like, especially in America and yeah. beyond, like, I feel like black creativity and black image making is the like foundation of everything that we exalt and everything that we terrorize totally. and that kind of like everything in between is so interesting and the way you help people I just love the way that like you're such a genius person and you're able to make people feel included and like able to learn along with you and I just love the way you model that like community scholar and it's Amazing. I'm so grateful that you're in L.A. Yeah, thanks. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone, go to the Brutally Early Club tomorrow morning. Come check out Candace partying at the Boiler Room tonight, and <laughs> you can get the full scope. Yeah, and um, before we wrap up, we ask everybody to sort of address Jess with the camera and kind of answer a question on behalf of For Your Art, which is like, my name is, and I support... <laughs> um. My name is Candace Williams, and I support um, black femme scholars, artists, thinkers, writers, poets, actors, thinkers, writers, poets, actors. Yes. Thank you <laughs> and back so and much. Welcome back to Telethon for Your Art. My name is Tierney Finster, host of Tierney Talks. We're live in the For Your Art booth at Freeze Los Angeles 2020, and I'm lucky to be joined by Andrew Maxwell. Hi, nice to be here. So you're hanging out on the back lot all weekend, or at least today. Can you tell me a little bit about who you're here with and what you're up to? Yeah, I'm here with the Poetic Research Bureau, which is both what we call a portable literary service and also a storefront and let's call it a gathering place in the downtown area for poets, writers, artists who are working with language in adventurous ways. Cool. It's, a, it's a space that we leave kind of undefined for you know, more restless sensibilities and 
in writing, yeah. I guess. I also love the way you describe um, the Poetic Research Bureau describes itself as a space for like non-professional experimentation in programming. What does that emphasis or quality sort of mean to you? I mean, I think we're we're interested in people that take writing on maybe as a mission more than a career, yeah. uh, and trying to provide a space for people to be intellectual in a in a public sphere without having to attach themselves to you know, the academy, to college or university, to an uh, industry, and allow themselves to be non-commercial, but still very much immersed in writing practice. It's so beautiful to me with like a background in writing um, that just to have that, like I'm so excited to learn more about the organization through he being here at Freeze and speaking to you because it seems like for a lot of us, even in the age of social media and social like distribution, that a lot of the ways to get your writing read or experienced is through those commercial modalities. So it's awesome to know that this kind of space exists in LA. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole kind of machine for producing towards the book, right? right. And so everybody talks about their latest project, as you would, you know, like an, an art project or an art installation yeah. or something like that. But one's process of writing becomes so beholden to that the, the book and the end product. And I think we're trying to provide a space for people that, you know, write a, as sort of a holistic way of, of being as well, too, yeah. right? Um, who, who invite sort of the process survive. of writing. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, yeah, I mean, or, or even, you know, it's... Maybe they're surviving in another way, but writing is part of, of documenting that survival as totally. well. I mean, just like, I feel like for me sometimes writing is so much, it's way beyond yourself, but just your relationship to yourself and reality and like, I don't know, writing helps me kind of, like, I feel like sometimes writing is like a gift to myself for later. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I mean, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, we used to think about it in terms of, I think this is a, a problematic term, but in terms of kind of a gift economy, it, you know, when you walk into the space, a lot of people just ask, is this a bookstore? And I'm like, you know, it's not quite a bookstore. It's not quite a library, but almost everything there is available for trade. I mean, that's usually how we kind of exchange and circulate things. People bring books in, we get books back. Half of the stuff there aren't even books. It's ephemera, it's cards, yeah. it's things like books that have been exploded in some way. Yeah, and that's something that I want to learn more about through my look into what happens there. And perhaps I can learn more about that in the actual space. This idea of a book being a collection of items or documents that might not seem like a book to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, people write in different ways, obviously, in spaces like this. And we often program in, you know, art spaces like this or for art events as well. You could say that the writing is kind of arts adjacent. Yeah. But I think we're looking for a portability outside the book itself, right? Totally. To bring that kind of process of, of writing elsewhere. Yeah, and I want to congratulate Poetic Research Bureau on, what is it, 20 or 21st year of free public programming? Yeah, so we uh, we had our first L.A. reading in February, I guess it's February now, of, of 2000. Oh, wow. It's 2020 now. We were counting up recently and realized we had done over 500 events over that wow. time. It, it started kind of as a reading series and a magazine up in the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we brought, when we came to L.A., we brought it to different venues. You know, it was in Glendale and downtown, but we've been in the Chinatown neighborhood for about 11 years now. Amazing. And so for people who are listening to this and who are really interested or curious, is the space open to the public? Like, can people just drop by? Where is it at? Uh, absolutely, yeah. It's on 951 Chungking Road uh, in the pedest kind of the pedestrian avenue okay. uh, in, in the middle of Chinatown. 
Um, it's pretty much open for events. We do share the space with the public school, which is a free school without a curriculum. So cool. it's kind of, the whole kind of, I think, group of people participating in the physical space kind of makes it almost like a free public university. Yeah. Where like talks and classes are held in the daytime, we do film screenings, and then during the weekends, we're kind of the arts and lecture series for the space. That's cool. And when it comes to programming, uh, are you open to receiving pitches or ideas? I don't know if pitches is too uh, formal of a word, but you know, like, do you hear from the community about stuff people are interested in doing, or do you kind of outreach to specific folks to come jump into this? I'd say at this point, probably almost 80% of our events come to us through the community. Cool. And the community is, that includes the greater LA and California community, but also it's international at this point. Like we love, for instance, to do like lots of literature and translation. So increasingly, people bring us. You know, we're, you know, we did. We've done a night recently of Brazilian poetry. You know, we do. Uh, we do uh, a lot of Latin American poetry, and and uh, we've done some French poetry. One of the best uh, events last year uh, was a night of Palestinian poetry. Oh, amazing! So, and, and it's not always poetry too. I should should say that I, I would say like the definition of what we do is kind of language arts in, yeah. in general. I mean, just the term and the idea of language arts is so. Interesting to me, and I feel like even at Freeze, more so than I thought here, there, um, there are lang there's language arts within these different visual arts too, and the yeah. way that typography and words appear in artwork is something I'm really connecting to here. Yeah, yeah. I think like you know, early on we were kind of seeing it coming out of the obviously the Fluxus traditions. We used to call it. Uh, of valise fiction, meaning it was like almost like a Fluxus suitcase or a yeah. Duchamp suit suitcase that you could bring from place to place. You'd unfold it and something magical <laughs> would happen. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I, we still have that sensibility of like wanting to like incorporate a spirit of wandering in, in, in the space. I love that. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously there's been text art and concrete poetry traditions for a long time all throughout the Americas, you know, from Lawrence Wiener to, you know, Cecilia Vicuña, you know, Yoko Ono. Um, yeah. So I, it's it's not like any of this is new, but I think totally. the receptivity to it across many different types of community is much more open than it's been in the past. Yeah. And um, when it comes to Los Angeles, I'm just wondering, like, I know there is a history of, like, avant-garde literary traditions here in the city, but I want to know more about them. Is there anything that comes to mind to you as, like, a beloved group or just something you think I should know about that kind of context here in L.A.? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think Los Angeles has been notoriously a challenging city to sustain literary communities. Yeah. Even in the sense of spaces, really the only other space in L.A. that has sustained itself for, you know, multiple years, I think, was beyond Baroque in Venice. Um, and that was a very vibrant community in the late 70s, you know, around the Little Caesar scene. And, and there was a lot of experimental film that was attached to it as well. Over the years, it's become, I'd say, more a little more nostalgic and more of a community uh, space. I mean community in a positive sense but totally but as opposed to many communities it's one yeah. one community yeah. right um, but I mean there's you know there's always been groups of I, I'd say like progressive experimental avant-garde poets here um, you know going back to the scenes around like say Paul Vangelisti and Martha Ronk and Douglas Messerly and some of the avant-garde presses like Sun and Moon in the 80s and 90s to you know things like you know, Boxcar and Sulphur, these magazines that um, that were more, um, let's say, you know, 
transitional, open to like lots of different types of writing uh, yeah. in the 70s as well. Um, cool. This like long-term interest of mine to pursue, you know, like yeah, all these yeah. like things I don't know. <laughs> in, in, in LA had also had a really interesting, from the 20s through the 50s, like a period of very political writing, like political poetry as well, that's often kind of, um, you know, put to the, put to the side. Like if you go in like areas around Echo Park and stuff, there were a lot of not only like very left-wing booksellers there, but also people that would gather in homes and, you know, do great political poetry alongside journalism, and very, uh, very much integrated with like the labor movement. Yeah, that's so. really interesting to check out. And have you always loved words? Did you love words growing up? Uh, when, when I was a child, my dream was to to become a lexicographer, basically somebody so cool. who, who writes dictionaries. Yeah. So, so actually, Joseph Moscone, who runs the space, and I actually did become lexicographers in our late 20s with, so a, cool. with a company here. And that's kind of how we got pulled back to L.A., I guess. Oh, cool. And I know that um, both you and Joseph, I feel like, work in like the technology space as well. Is that safe to say? Is it safe to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is it accurate? I, I, I'd say that we have many lives and aren't afraid to use them. Same. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many I'm hiding. You have, um, you have to make your bread somehow, I guess. I guess I'm asking because I don't think that just every person listening in the world, you know, who might not fetishize language or obsess over yeah. the abstraction and recontextualization of language or who maybe really doesn't understand what the hell an algorithm is or how information is organized. Can you kind of um, describe the correlation between like how like something like Google or these different technological like powerhouses, like how does like classifying and combining language information like how does what's the link there between words and those things we experience online i think this question probably comes from the fact that vocationally we were we were taxonomists and we worked on classification problems at google for some time and then later youtube and i'm at snapchat now but um nice but i think part of it is like it, it, this this feels problematic to say but it's like a kind of a democratization of information and realizing that like maybe text doesn't stop at the page in some yeah. way. So I think we became interested in textual practices that went beyond the page and actually we became very interested in you know, early digital publishing and the fact that you didn't have to turn writing into something that was contained and for sale, yeah. but it could be freely distributed to everybody. Yeah. Obviously that was very disruptive when Google did things like digitizing libraries. Yeah. Um, but I think we've always been maybe a little skeptical of traditional intellectual property. Yeah. And, and are there ways that we can, you know, bring writing to the surface and make it freer for everybody and more accessible to everybody? I love that. I mean, I feel like, uh, I don't know, it's very like, it's an easy talking point or like assumption to be like, people read less now, you know, books are less important now or what, not that I think that, but just like, there's this popular notion that people read less, but yeah. I'm also like, people look at their phones all day, right? I, I, like, isn't that a lot of language and text? I think it's quite the opposite. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think people read far more than they ever did, but it's just, it's not in traditional book forms. Yeah. Although, like, actually, if you look at audiobook sales, in digital book sales, you would see almost no difference, or, or they've actually increased in oh, the wow. last few decades as well. That's so it's not really like interesting. Traditional publishing is collapsing to a degree, but a very different type of publishing is emerging. Cool. 
Well, thank you so much for coming by. It's so fun to speak to you, and I can't wait to check out the Poetic Research Bureau for myself. Th thanks for inviting us, and I love this. I, I would call this like lipstick karaoke font. Oh on my the, god! Uh, yeah, <laughs> on the like, microphone. I mean, typography can like change the meaning of a word, right? Not that this is happening here, but you certainly get to know me through the font. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just I mean, remember it's... learning how to write, like the first ever, you know, third grade writing assignments. Just the notion of like or just the experience of right I would I don't know it's just so funny to think about what we love and like just for me the physical act of writing on a piece of paper and it was that like thin almost beigeish like school paper uh -huh. I just like completely got off on writing like just to see all of my word you know to see my story on that paper and to feel the impression of the pen like I'm not even nostalgic for it because I still experience that like every single day yeah, but yeah. it gives me such satisfaction the way words can look so well, well I think this definitely occupies and excites <laughs> the white page right so. yeah right <laughs> um to wrap up here will you look into ca Jess's camera and will you say like um you know my name is and I support or I'm a member of and it can be of course the Poetic Research Bureau uh, my name's Andrew Maxwell, and with Joseph Moscone, um, we founded and ran the, and continue to run the Poetic Research Bureau. Come check it out in Chinatown. Thank you so much, Andrew. We're back. Thank you for tuning in to Telethon for Your Art. My name is Tierney Finster, host of Tierney Talks, and I'm with Ezra and Michael from Pretend Plants and Flowers in the For Your Art booth at Freeze 2020. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Tierney. Hi. Ezra's checking out our hot pics. <laughs> One second. I'm just like... Do we look good? Beyond. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Paige Martin, for beating me today. We're booth maids out here at Freeze. We're in the like street fair area of the fair. Pretend Plants and Flowers has your very own booth. What are you offering people there today? So what we're offering is basically a little glimpse into our flower world. Um, flower, we have a few flowers for sale, but beyond that we have amazing vessels, ceramic vessels, glass vessels, woven vessels. Um, from from really cool artists and artisans. Um, one of them is Matthias Vrienz McGrath. He's a LA-based ceramic uh, design guru. Um, we've got other uh, ceramic vessels from Peter Shire. Oh, amazing! Yeah, those are cool. Shire Which you can see at our yes. booth here today too. I'm so grateful that you shared flowers with oh, us. Yeah. It looks so pretty. We shared and we shired with you. Will you tell yeah. me about some of these flowers? Or I mean, before you went into the business of flowers, were you super knowledgeable about them? Yeah. So that's kind of a funny story. So my family has been in the flower business. I would be a fourth-generation florist. Oh, my amazing. two great-grandfathers on my mom's side were in the were florists, and my grandfather was a florist, and my mom and dad were florists. And then I found myself in this business too, like something I literally never thought I would do. We started the business about a year ago. I, um, prior to that, was a stylist. I worked with real estate. I. Uh, I'm a founder of a perfume company called Regime des Fleurs. Uh, I do some art advising and curatorial work. And um, about two years, years ago, Michael and I met. Flowers and plants was a big part of 
our connection. Yeah, I went to school for um, architecture, and then I minored in horticulture. Oh, amazing. So I have, like, a little bit of a background in plants and totally. flowers as well. Um, but I actually practice interior design up until the point where we started uh, the flower Pretend. company. Yeah. So we kind of come from it from two different sides of the world, but we kind of meet in the world of flowers. So yeah. many applicable sides, it feels like, between, yeah. like... Flowers, design, fashion, architecture, it really exactly. makes sense when you look at the things you create because they're so like sculptural at times and amazingly arranged. It's, Thank you. I walked into Patina for your arts home for her holiday party and was so amazed by the flowers you put together. Oh, thank you. That so was pretty. fun. That was pretend as holiday yeah <laughs> pretend christmas yeah exactly um and we love bettina so much and she's been such a supporter for us she's actually the reason we started this she kind of like so. twisted our arm into doing flowers for her for her birthday party one year about a year and a half ago mm -hmm. and uh people kind of flipped when we did them and all of a sudden we found ourselves doing flowers for people for money and it's been kind of crazy ever since then. Like, our business just kind of full took off. Keeps going. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of an accident. <laughs> but a happy one. <laughs> a really cute, fun, flowy accident. Yeah. Does it feel amazing when you uh, show up or the people show up, the clients, and see the flowers? That's, like, the most rewarding, fun thing. And almost to the point that, like when you don't get like immediate positive feedback you're like what yeah. like <laughs> you don't think i'm amazing and then like usually like shortly after you have that feeling you get this other feedback and you're like okay they thought we were amazing yeah cool. they yeah. love it they're that just nice. like good thing you can things right now or something but it really it's like the flowers that are doing all the work we're just like there to kind of let them be who they are because yeah and just <laughs> highlighting them yeah. in yeah. different combinations totally. yeah do you feel like your approach to floral design is informed by the sort of legacy you grew up around or do you feel like you have a different perspective towards the art um we have two different points of view about that you can go first michael <laughs> i would say i don't have quite as much of a, like a pedigree in yeah. floral as Ezra, but I kind of come from a place of architecture, design, engineering, kind of focused work. Yeah. And so I approach every arrangement or every installation that we do from a little bit more of a technical standpoint. I'm like, how can we balance these things? What's the form going to be? What's the shape going to be? And how am I actually going to make it? Yeah. And I think Ezra approaches it from a little bit of a different perspective. Yeah, so, um, well, I kind of grew up fully surrounded by flowers. And my parents are pretty exquisite people. So they really brought this, like, very, very high sensibility to floristry. So I was really kind of cynical and jaded about flowers and floral design and I have a kind of not to sound fully snobby but like rarefied taste when it comes to flowers like I like the most one on one hand I like every flower and I see something special and even the most like common and banal flowers but on the other hand I have this super in-depth knowledge of what's available to florists so the more kind of like rare a flower is and 
special it is in the context of floristry, the more obsessed I am. And I think that's something kind of unique that we bring that like you can't really get without being fully lifelong immersed in it. Totally. Is there one specific flower or plant that you've worked with that you felt was like the most rare? Uh, yeah, there's a couple things. So I am obsessed with uh, violets. And in the since like the Victorian era through about the 1940s, violets were a really common flower in commercial floristry. Now there's only, I think, one farm in Italy that offers violets for the commercial market. Oh, wow. Um, and when we get them from time to time, I fully freak out. There's something that like you can find in a garden once in a while, and people don't really pay that much attention to. The flowers are like this big, but like what they mean in the world of floristry is so kind of romantic and special to me. I'm obsessed with the smell. Yeah. They're just like my everything. And so when we get the opportunity to work with them, I get so excited. And another kind of rare thing that we do like going back to the rare flower thing is I'm a big gardener so around the house we have like specialty plants that are kind of hard to grow or hard to find in the area yeah. and produce flowers once a year and so Ezra gets really excited about using like the, the one flower yeah. that's our, coming from my plant and our one <laughs> one rare orchid that yeah. blooms every like 18 months or yeah. something. Oh or like the Persian carpet flowers. Yeah, the Persian like carpet things flowers. That like, things that like, they don't sell in the market. You yeah, because of the like nature of Literally them. no one can get except for us. Those are those are really, really fun. A rare fun. collection in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Come by our spot and you'll see some cuties. Yeah, and whenever we have... Crossing my fingers. Whenever we have plants, uh, flowers on our plants, we try to use them in our arrangements. So like if someone were to order one, and it was a lucky day. They yeah, would get like get a, a plant you, or a flower you could never get. It's so amazing. Yeah. Even if it's also sometimes just to make something cool for our own entertainment and shoot it for content for Instagram. Yeah. Totally. We do that a lot. And enjoy actually. it yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it or must be gratifying. For, that like is perfect for like a second, and the second you like snap the pic, it all kind of crumples over. over. <laughs> Ezra, when you mentioned your um, fragrance line, yeah. I really wasn't aware of that. And I'm oh. such a, like, beauty and scent addict that yeah, me too. I just i am curious, like, does that floral background inform the scents you're drawn to? Or are you kind of operating in a different realm? Yeah, so that's a really funny thing. You know, it's so funny when I, I really brought my background in flowers and uh, horticulture and stuff from a different place than Michael to yeah. where I was coming from with fragrance. And I was obsessed with floral fragrances and my company that I'm a founder of Regime des Fleurs was all about celebrating the like magical joy that flowers are. Um, and that kind of connecting to who I am as a person through my fragrance company is actually part of what led me to get back into, into doing business. flowers as my own kind of expression separate from that. What a beautiful entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's cool. Serial entrepreneur. <laughs> serial entrepreneur. Um, yeah, and a big part of what we do and why we do it is because we, I think we really share our 
love and connection with people through the people we work with on our team, the people that uh, we work with as clients, and the people who are lucky enough to uh, receive our flowers. Yeah. And that's kind like of, me? I think, where we're coming <laughs> from creatively. Yeah. Yeah, it took a lot to not bring these in my purse home last Girl. night. <laughs> <laughs> bring them in your purse home with you tonight and bring them back tomorrow. Exactly they right. To like, Keep them everywhere. Yeah, they deserve to Follow stare you at your gorgeousness while you're sleeping. Come will on. you teach me some of the names of these flowers? Yeah, that would be our pleasure. Yeah. Michael will do that. Okay, so <laughs> these are curly alliums Ooh. from Japan. Japan. Oh, these wow. are also from Japan. These are... Um, Ranunculus. Ranunculus. Like amazing Japanese really crazy species. Like, usually a ranunculus is, like, this big and all one color. I was thinking, that's not what I thought yeah. that looks like. Yeah. And these are, like, fully, like, haute couture, like, Christian Lacroix haute couture, like, feather flowers that literally, as you have them, the flower just keeps getting bigger and bigger feather and flowers. dilating to, like let out more Extreme genius potential. love yeah yeah oh these start God. out when we bought them at the market on <laughs> monday or tuesday they were tight and then they grow they open up and then they grow and they get like wow i mean five much times wider big. yeah, yeah. That's um so cool. and then these are orchids these are actually orchid plants sometimes we do a little trick where we buy a, a full plant and cut the um pseudobulbs oh, okay and use it as like a, a strong stem in a flower arrangement yeah because they look so like solid and beautiful yeah. symbinium orchids from our garden they're so pretty yeah, yeah. and do then you there's ever also pet your flowers uh, oh, we yeah. touch the le the petals the whole time, yeah, <laughs> and try to, you know, make them face the right way. Oh, <laughs> so you're not you're not afraid to. No, I, no, we're not afraid <laughs> to. Also, Oncidium orchids here. Oh wow. Those oh, little tiny, or excuse me, epidendron orchids. Those little tiny orchids. Those are from our uh, garden as well. Yeah. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on the subject of petting the flowers, there's this one thing that orchids do many times, and other flowers do where if you kind of look at them in certain light, the yeah. petals become like glistening crystals. They look like they're like made of glitter oh my God. from heaven. And that's like one of our favorite things. And that's just when that's you're like- That's like the sun hitting the ocean. Exactly. So in a exactly. flower. It's the most incredible thing. I honestly am getting a little bit of glitter right here. Totally, <laughs> yes. So yeah, pretty. these have it for sure. The glitter's the, glitter's the thing. That's like. The high, 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 amazing part of the glitter is definitely my highest value, especially when naturally occurring. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when you guys stepped away for lunch, I was just had a break and I just stood by your booth because I wanted the energetic vibration of the flowers. Oh, I love I'm sure that. it's beautiful that you share your relationship with all these plants. <laughs> yeah. And it it's is. so fun to be here with you since we're like kind of almost becoming best friend-in-laws um, through our girl, we, Andrea. Yes, Miss <laughs> I feel the same way. I was a little bit jealous of your Yucatan uh, trip together, so our full, maybe like, next time. Yeah, next girl, time. of course next time. Our full, like, <laughs> Celosa journey, it was cray-cray. sounded amazing. So, yeah. One of my favorite perfumes is actually called uh, Flowers of the Yucatan. Oh, right. Um, Andrea was telling me about that. What is that fragrance? Um, so it's just like, it, I don't want to call it Plumeria because I don't know the actual, I don't think it is Plumeria, mm -hmm. but it gives me that kind of like 
really strong but fresh. Just like it makes me feel like the sun. It's like that glitter on the flower. Right. It makes me feel Love. like the sun is hitting me on the beach right. in a garden. <laughs> there, well, oh, yeah. Plumeria or Frangipani is endemic to the Yucatan, so oh, really? it might be that. Be that. Uh, very Nico here actually taught me frangy. Oh, really? Frangy panty because I always grew up calling it plumeria. Yeah, yeah. So it's so yeah. funny. Um, well, we're going to have to dissect fragrance profiles <laughs> when we hang out next of because um, I need to consult on like my signature scent and yeah, maybe girl. get a new one. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah. Thank you so much, Ezra and Michael. It was so fun to have you here. It was our pleasure. Thank Before you. Before we wrap up, can you just look into the camera and. Um, Say like uh, one only one of you can do it or both of you like my name is or we are and we support or we're a member of some people shout out their business some people shout out an institution they love or a cause mm. or a person it's free form a content gift to Patina okay you go first you Michael. can go <laughs> <laughs> my um, name is Tierney Finster and I support pretend plants and flowers um, thank you <laughs> uh, we I'm Ezra Woods and this is Michael Woodcock. We are Pretend Plants and Flowers, and we support universal love, flowers, and the joy that they bring to everyone. Yay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Until next time. Yes, it's our 10th interview of the day. Welcome back to Telethon for Your Art. I'm Tierney Finster, host of Tierney Talks, and I'm really happy to be here with the artist, Gabriela Sanchez. Hi, I'm happy to be here. How are you doing? What has your freeze experience been like thus yeah. far? Um, well, now all the hard work is done, so now I can kind of just like take a breath, coast, just like walk through with friends and family. Yeah, the hard stuff is done, so kind of just like enjoying this part or trying and not yeah. getting too hectic. <laughs> right. So how um, long ago did you begin conceiving the variety of projects you have exhibited here today? Yeah, um, pretty much as soon as I found out that I was going to be a part of this, I started um, thinking about it because this is the first time that I've been at Freeze and it's kind of um, at a larger scale for me and I've never done a project this large before so um, yeah the like pressure was definitely on not from anyone else like I had such I had such great support yeah but from myself yeah so I kind of got right in there as soon as I got the email yeah <laughs> so it's been a couple months and I know you're um, you've been busy walking friends and family and other people through the spaces and checking out your work. Uh, will you give people tuning in a, a like recap of that or a sense of the different aspects to your work represented here? Yeah. Um, so I have a solo booth with Charlie James Gallery, which is in the big tent. Um, and it's a series of three large uh, scale paintings and um, a series of sculptures. And then um, on the back lot where we are right now, I have a really large um, vinyl installation on the side of uh, the tower as you enter the back lot. And it's three vinyls that hang that are connected with chains and um, display different imagery and text. Um, and then I also have a series of floor graphics that go through the back lot. Um, that kind of act as like these cheeky directional signs. Yeah, like on your way out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. They're so fun. Thank you. Do you feel like different aspects of your personality or practice are represented?
represented by each or are they all very yeah. similar in any way? I feel like they're all pretty similar. Like I think if you were to see my work on the back lot, then you would also see my work um, in the booth, like the connection there because I kind of employ the same techniques of like double speak with the text where I use a lot of sans serif font and then also gothic script to kind of act as two different voices and um, that's what I do back here in the floor graphics and then also in the banners and that's something that's carried throughout my um, paintings and then also a lot of the imagery um, that I collage into my paintings are also um, using the same imagery for the banners. So cool. Do you love typography? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, enjoy, I really enjoy it. I, um, I wouldn't say I love it because it's kind of like you know people who love typography. It's almost like people who say they love Star Wars. Like you have it's to know so every yeah. fucking thing to yeah. really say something like that. Right. Like I'm not someone who can look at a sign and be like, oh. It's that, that, like, yeah. Foundry made that one or anything like that. But I do love it. I love, I came to really love graphic design and um, and just kind of wordplay and, like, the mechanics of talking to an audience in that form. So Yeah, and in your art, like, I don't know, as someone who's such a writer and communicator mm. myself, I am really excited by your work particularly. And then speaking to the Poetic Research Bureau here today, just has given me a lot of access into understanding what an impact words can have on visual art. And mm -hmm. although we could take that for granted with like, of course, you know, graphic design or yeah. a cover of a book or something, but it's just like in the context of a fair or in these specific artworks, it's really powerful and cool. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I'm really interested in communication and it's communication in terms of like imagery and playing that off of, um, playing off of that, but also language, and even as simple as just a single word in kind of repetition and how that then um, creates and grows a whole dialogue. I'm really interested because it's, uh, you know, our communication isn't just limited to like the exact words that we say, it's all the subtext, all the yeah. um, things surrounding it, the tone, everything that gets brought into it. And even the, even if we're not crazy typography experts, yeah. um, it's, pretty clear that by choosing different like representations of these words that you're skewing the meaning a bit yeah you can create a new context is it seems like you play with that pretty yeah <laughs> yeah I'm really interested in that like in the banners that are hanging at the um, entrance of the back lot where the word homes is repeated three times and in different font styles so that you know when you read it in a sans serif font it might evoke like the image of a house and then when you read it in a gothic script it might evoke the image of more like um, Latinx kind of dialogue of like homie homeboy stuff like yeah. that um, yeah cool <laughs> so interesting and I feel like you grew up in Los Angeles mm -hmm. does it have any special significance or does it impact your experience of showing and exhibiting at such a large-scale fair in LA yeah um, I mean, growing up, I wasn't, I grew up in LA, but I wasn't exposed to the art world, yeah. really. Like, I honestly hadn't been to LACMA until, like, I think college. Right. Um, and so to be a part of an art fair that's, like, this magnitude um, in my hometown is really special for me because my family can come. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's a really nice moment to feel like I um, can kind of close like a circle 
yeah, in my like life. Yeah, it's a homecoming and yeah, a for uh-huh. your art. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like I was just reading about um, how when LACMA kind of began that they didn't uh, feature or exhibit any artists from Los Angeles. Mm, yeah. It's just so exciting and resident to have an artist like you who I feel like represents such a fresh and interesting perspective and one oh, that feels you. really rooted in LA. I love that your perspective is super amplified. I mean, I spend a lot of my time at the fair in the back lot and this is sort of you're the queen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's um it's been incredible that I like I don't know, I had such great support for this project so I was able to really dream up whatever I wanted to do and got so the support cool. to be able to like do something at that scale, which I've never done before. Yeah. Same, honestly. Yeah. I mean, like, I've never done right? this it's, to this scale, so it's just such a blessing. And yeah. Fun. And I think it's like the they're doing it right because it creates really cool projects like this, you know, yeah. that like maybe if people hadn't just given us the support we needed, but were a little more heavy handed, you know, it might yeah. have gotten stripped down a little bit. Totally. And, um, yeah, so we're sort of asking people to address the camera mm-hmm. and sort of like say your name and say like I support or I belong to and kind of fill in the blank with whatever just feels natural to you. Okay. Um, you look at Jess actually. Oh, hi. I'm Gabriela Sanchez. Since we were just talking about him, I do support Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Woo! Um, and um, also... I support this organization called YCA, which is a young, it's called Young Creative Agencies. And um, I've worked with them before as a mentor and they hook up like professional um, established creatives with a mentee, usually like 18 to 24. um, And they actually work on real life projects. So I worked with um, a mentee on a project for Spotify where we did like a whole internal branding for them and both the young person and myself get paid and um, the organization kind of just like trains these young creatives in like the real process so that when they are out there on their own they know how much they should get paid they know how to present a professional deck and um, yeah it's really great empowering yeah I feel like um, it's one thing to like when you're an emerging or young or beginning artist of any you know background or like experience level it's one thing to like put together or slap together resources to make your work but then to like be able to professionally or Mm -hmm. really craftually like present it archive it distribute or pitch it these are all skills that most of us really learn by like trial and error yeah Yeah, so that kind of support is amazing i'm really really excited that you brought that up yeah i love the organization because it's just like you like you said through trial and error and if you can like help that there's not as much air like even just knowing how to like uh, kind of like how how much your work is worth and how yeah. to like carry yourself even in email form because if nobody tells you yeah. you never know mm-hmm. that's why I try to ask my rich friends what yeah. they charge yes. yeah. <laughs> this is about 10 exactly. times more than what I was thinking every yes. time mm-hmm. <laughs> and just to be able to be that person and to not have such like closed mouths or secrecy around yeah. who gets what because 
I feel like there really are, especially in a city like LA, there are so many resources, so much wealth in terms of money, but also just in terms of creativity and projects. Like Exactly. We don't need to be competitive when yeah. there's so much to go around. So to bring that into different generations is beautiful. Yeah. And I feel like when we all kind of share resources, things keep growing. Right. And I'm sure you enjoyed learning and experiencing your mentee mm-hmm. as well. And yeah, like, exactly. I feel like for artists staying in touch with those people coming up, like, yeah. that's going to be, like, your, like, commissioner or your yeah. collaborator or your boss one day, yeah, too. So yeah. why not get to know each other now? Exactly, yeah. It allows me to grow, too. Thank you so much for taking yeah, the time course. to come this by. So I really fun. appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Jory Finkel is a critic and a regular contributor to the New York Times and the art newspaper. She's also the author of It Speaks to Me, Art That Inspires Artists, which she was signing copies of in the booth right next to us at Freeze. You're about to listen to us discuss the book in more juicy detail. I hope you enjoy. I covered his big Alcatraz project in San Francisco for the New York Times, but I didn't know, and very, very few people, I'm talking a handful of people in the world, knew that he was a, such a serious jade collector. So out of everybody in the book, he is the one who has this kind of connoisseurship-level knowledge of what he discusses. What he and he chose the Shang Dynasty jade. He knows, you know, the 350 words in Chinese for qualities of jade. Wow. And he told a really personal and moving story about how when he grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China, jade was forbidden. You couldn't collect it. It was associated with dynasties. With the with past. The, with the royalty, exactly, with the past. So you couldn't collect jade, and his father, who was a poet in exile, had been given one piece of jade, and Weiwei remembers that if his father had been found with this jade, he, it would have been confiscated, or he would have been confiscated, or worse. Yeah. And then when the country opened up, and he was able to see jade at flea markets, he started collecting. So he's been collecting jade for 30 plus years wow. in a really serious and passionate way. So that was just a revelation to me because it's amazing. we think we know everything about him because he's such a big so star. So famous and globally recognized. And in, on Instagram posting every move so you know what he ate sometimes. or Not the jade. No. <laughs> no, he didn't post the jade. And really you realize that he uses his Instagram platform for social causes. Yeah. And that he's not promoting his own collecting or his own interests he's promoting his own political that he's not amplifying like um yeah just something more expected yeah yeah exactly i love it and it's so interesting how such a simple i mean the conceit of like what art moves you it sounds like a simple question so it's beautiful to hear about the complex and amazing conversations that emerge from it i think they also get a little more complex with younger generation artists Um, where the older artists, I'd say over the age of 40 or 45, chose things that they just love. Yeah. And the younger artists choose things that they have a more complicated relationship with. Like like Mark uh, Bradford chose a Mark Rothko that he used to love. And then he kind of... And then he learned more about Rothko and how white that milieu was. Yeah. And how it wouldn't have included artists of color or queer artists like himself. Super like... 
well, you know, I'm not an art professional, so I can be uh, gossipy, but like super much like white masculine alcoholism or something. Exactly, exactly. So then the mythology of Rothko turned him off. So so interesting. So I felt that that was one thing I noticed is just the younger artists were more critical. And I don't know if that's because of their schooling or just their identity and who gets to be an artist or who, you know what I mean? Exactly. It's so interesting because I used to go to LACMA and sit in front of um, some of their big Rothkos and like cry as a teenager. Like it was so moving to me and I still like, I wanted to paint my nails the other day like Rothko inspired but personally I'm not as like connected (laughs) to the narrative anymore or something. Exactly. There's a Rothko at the fair. Did you see it Oh, I haven't seen it yet. You gotta check it out. I'm gonna have a great opportunity to walk around soon so I can't wait. Thank you so much. Thank so nice to me. hang out. Um, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. My colleague always thinks I'm going to forget the big question, and I never do, so I don't okay. know why. But um, it's basically for For Your Art, we're asking people to acknowledge uh, something they support, amplify, or a member of. So if you could, like, look into the camera and say, you're, you know, I am, you know, your name, and then something that you just want to, you know, it's whether it's shout out or, yeah, what you'd like to shout out. I am a volunteer at this amazing organization called Sojourn in Santa Monica that helps victims of domestic violence. And you would not believe women of all different income levels, all different education levels, all different races who have been helped by this organization. So amazing. Thank you so much. Sojourn? Sojourn. Sojourn. Thank you so much. Until next time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was so nice. So we're nearing the end of the episode. I will set the scene for you a little. This was the conclusion of the second day of our installation in the For Your Art booth at Freeze Los Angeles 2020. And the sun was setting, but while the light might have been dissipating, the crowds were not. So there were tons of friends and new people to sort of distract get distracted by as they walked by all evening um but with guests like mine especially the person I'm about to introduce it was no problem to remain focused because they're brilliant um this next guest is a friend of mine I'm lucky to say and probably no stranger to many of you listeners Mandy Harris Williams Mandy Harris-Williams is a critical caption essayist whose work you may have already seen on Instagram at the handle Ideal Black Female, at Ideal Black Female. Mandy is an artist, a brilliant theorist, writer, consultant, and is also the programming director at the Women's Center for Creative Work here in L.A. Mandy hosts the Brown Up Your Feed Radio Hour on NTS Radio and is also the author of the Color Values Pamphlets, which are these amazing, amazing critical discourses that imbue so much creativity onto racial politics and identity, beauty, and so many other key themes to Mandy's work and my heart. Um, Here we go. Enjoy us. This is somebody that I could speak to for hours so this will just be a quick blip i appreciate your ears thanks for listening enjoy um 
I think it starts with like a really deep like self-awareness of like I think there's a lot of different ways to love right as many ways to love as there are people and relationships um, and so I think like one has to be really aware of like how it reaches their heart space right so like if I say I love you to somebody who is not really like fond of hearing those words that um, it might not mean the same thing. So like really like being aware of one's own like senses, sensations, and how that like kind of structures up to like the organization of those senses and yeah. sensations into love. And then I also think the other side of like getting the love that one deserves is also that they are able to kind of like enter a romance marketplace without having kind of these ideal notions of like what a lover should be or look like um, in the way of them being perceived at all or like for who they are. So I think... Um, those two things relate to Brown Up Your Feed because I think one of the groups or like many, many groups who are kind of like systematically underloved are folks who are kind of like at the edges of brownness, if not yeah. physically, like at least um, conceptually. So like of black people, darker skinned people or of even indigenous people, darker skinned people. Um, or, you know, I think that the idea of Brown Up Your Feet is kind of, like, able to be broadened into any sort of idea. Um, because especially in this day and age of, like, respectability um, representation, right? You have so many folks who are being represented in the media, but they are closer to the white femme um, norm. So, like, how can we... How can we broaden like who's being represented, um, not just categorically, but like with a depth of, I guess, hue or like you know fullness of body or queerness, whatever right. it is, right? So like within this, I guess it's perhaps perhaps like a central criticism of this era of like representation as not the highest good, but as like there's this notion that representation of diversity or of just of reality is an achievement uh, for these like powers or institutions that be but I feel like what I learn a lot from your work is how even within those um, attempts or experiences or movements that it so often continues to perpetuate like white supremacists and other like dominant culture lenses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I think we really have to, like, when I look at it, I, like, look in a historical lens, too. Like, and I try to think about, like, what is the time wherein white supremacy has not affected the media, right? Yeah. And so I think now we have, like, lowered barriers to access per, like, Instagram or social media. And so I think people feel, like, that they are both entitled to make media and share it, but also that, like that media could be taken seriously, it could be viral um, and shared widely. So I think, um, I guess like that's the, the lowered barrier to access element also kind of, it just makes me really weary of like how, how that's being pitched. Um, when in reality, we've never had kind of like that abatement yeah. of like white supremacy. So like, sure, you have a free market now, right? But that's after a hundred years of motion picture and like, you know, 200 years of screen and, like, photo culture, right, that right. says that thin white women are the romantic and beauty 
obviously those two things are linked. Yeah. Ideal. They're beautiful, and that's who you fall in love with. Right. And if you happen to fall in love, I mean, the ethos goes where it's like, if you happen to get or achieve or find love as someone outside of those norms, you better be so grateful. Or it's like, right, 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 like, right. Not to be so touchy, but just like, <laughs> I feel like people sometimes will congratulate me on having a romantic, like, long-term partnership yeah. in this way where it's like, it's like, I, uh, it, I don't know, like, everyone's testing on a curve and I like somehow made it over the hump like uh, my literal humps like got by <laughs> and I often am like in my DMs and because I like criticize beauty culture people are always like you're beautiful I hope you find someone who really loves you and I'm like you think that's what this is all about? <laughs> it's not about that. Yeah, you're like, hey, people want to fuck me, so don't worry yeah. about that. And people do love me. People do love me. Starting with yourself, too. And they do fuck me, too. Yeah, and you could love and fuck yourself, too. And that True. your desire to expand the conversation around desirability politics or right. desirability standards is about this, like, political machine of imagery and history that has such repercussions beyond who's getting laid or married. <laughs> right. Key point. Yeah. <laughs> so we're here at Freeze. Um, what would you do to brown up Freeze? Or <laughs> Ooh, brown up Freeze. Um, okay. I well, mean, if that's an okay framing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually did um, a story for Vulture like a year ago about brown up your galleries. Cool. And I, I talked about actually how white women are the fastest growing population in the art world. So I guess one of like the direct strategies would be like white women need to find black women to bring into art spaces. Um, yes. And also because I think like, you know, I'm a fairly privileged black woman and but I don't want my struggle to just end with me. So totally. I'm like, okay, who am I looking around? Just looking at the patterns and how shit shakes out. Yeah. You know, who do I have to bring in with me? What is the thing that when I program, I want to have somebody, you know, uh, involved in that who is darker than me or who I realize is not experiencing the same structural benefits as I am, you know? It's like, totally. it's not a binary. Like, privilege is not a binary, right? No. So we can all look around us and kind of assess those who we can pull up on our way up uh totally and i also feel without cutting you off like i i feel without generalizing but perhaps i am it's like i think for me at least as like a white woman creating within art world and like super femme and cis it's like um that doesn't mean that I get to make my entire identity about the oppression of white women. Like, do you know, I think so often that while we are finding community around shared struggle and that I'm not asking anybody to pretend they don't have, like, experiences that aren't as privileged regardless of who they are, but just to not let that be the end point and let, not let that be the, like, crux of your critical analysis of privilege because so many, like white women in the arts especially in LA it's just like gives me like super like pink pussy hat vibe like just like some neoliberal <laughs> experiences we're looking around this <laughs> scanning <fair> right now <laughs> luckily these you chicks can't, can't hear, hear these us. microphones <laughs> we are talking we're talking shit 
But I just like, <laughs> whether it's through education or where we're from, you know, like you're from New York, I'm yeah. from LA. Upper West Side, too. Yeah, that's just yeah. like an example where somebody from, you know, middle America or for some, you know, outside of the country, like we could just feel so much outsider vibes from complexes like fine art that exists as such an industry and entertainment as well. Like, yeah. what are your thoughts around... Um, all of these systems as they apply to like Hollywood and the stars Ooh. you see like are there stars you love or what stars do you need that you don't see are there stars that I you I'm seeing you I want your come up as much as I want mine Thank you. Um, Same. throwback <laughs> we met yes and we the first time we met we sketched out like the trajectory of our whole friendship it's so cool it's pretty cool. We manifested that we would like try to um, see intellectuals as like rock stars, art stars, glamorous icons, glam icons, um, fashion, and muses. Like, being inclusive while still giving that aspirationalness. Like right, that's like a complicated right. word, but just this idea that like because you want to have rooted in because you want to be rooted in certain values doesn't mean that you need to like deny the pleasure or fun or like sexiness of some of these creative pursuits. Yeah. Well, I think that like it's crazy because there is enough wealth that we can split the difference a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> we can like come back a little bit and, and um, maybe just like I think you know, I think the thing about it is is like if you if I I have like thought about this brown up your feed principle is almost like a magnet like a behavioral magnet and at this point in training myself and getting so cracked out on my own brand which one must do should, yeah. that the praxis has changed my brain such that I'm like okay how can I brown this up how can I utilize my privilege right now to extend privilege to others how can I keep them safe when I extend that privilege? Yeah. Because Lord knows privilege is not always what it looks like. Totally. Um, so I'm always like, I'm always thinking about it, maybe not even as like a, a discrete set of actions, but now it's almost like syn synaptic. Yeah, that's really good. Um, but I think if people, to get back to your question, I think if people at Freeze, like really think about like, you know, why are... Why are the people who are here, here? What does that have to do with the history of transatlantic racism? Like some people may say nothing. There are other people who believe that the art world is deeply vested, right? In a history of transatlantic slavery and racism and imperialism. Um, yeah. And the museum world in general. Imperial funded collections, imperially right. sourced collections. Right. Yeah, so I think um, as much as possible, like, redistribute resources. I think it, right. it can actually be really, like, sporty, fun, sexy, slick, because you're doing the right thing, but you do have to be charming to, to get it done. Right. But, like, whatever. And to take up the space. <laughs> like, you know, I feel... Sometimes even among... I mean, especially perhaps among especially privileged people, there's just this... Like we're all trained that there's such scarcity in the art entertainment world that we're supposed to be happy to be there. So then if we're there, we like even someone like me, it's like, oh, I have so much privilege, but maybe, oh, I'm scared to ask for this hire or this experience because, oh, now they're going to cut, you know, it's like they're ask for what you want. Ask for what your community needs. Ask for what you want. Ask for what your community needs. And I think also to get back to this idea of representation. I think the most important thing there, and to like tie it back to mm -hmm. what we're talking about now, obviously, is like 
now this like post-identity politics neoliberalism is very much like I am this identity and so I can take up this space yeah as you were kind of saying yeah. um, with your example as opposed to like I am this station in the ecology and I can you know per my own you know strength cunning charisma um, you know ability to think through new frameworks I can distribute things in a different way totally which would be cuter and more interesting yeah <laughs> definitely more glam more, more glam. glam yeah because I mean for whatever reason right these ideas I like even like you know community organizing and certain experiences of like progressive political awareness are becoming more are becoming cooler and they're becoming more like celebrity inclusive or becoming more fashionable but at the same time like there's a very long history that entire film and photograph history 100 200 years where it was very unsexy or unallowed to offer some of that perspective so I hope that we're just continuing pushing for more and more. Yeah. Money. Glamorize your intellectuals. Glamorize your intellectuals. Yeah. <laughs> and I also want to speak about rave reparations. Can you tell me yeah. about that project and what comes of it and what it represents to you? Um, so rave reparations is born um, after having been in so many like rave and after hour spaces in Los Angeles um, that were fully just like white parties and yeah. it was weird because like I had heard about like I had heard rather yeah. house music and dance music a lot growing up in New York but also then um, just like being in a family that's from Chicago and yeah. so I felt really like aware of house music and club music sounds um, so when I got to those spaces it was a really a shock to me that there were so many white people and furthermore the white people were looking at me kind of like you know, yeah. <laughs> like you're sticking out like a sore thumb. And I thought that was quite interesting when one considers, you know, just the, the history of the thing. So, yeah, um, we decided again, like, you know, decided to utilize being in that space and having those relationships in like, um, you know, the multiracial rave world um, to start a conversation about the fact that this is an art form that is derived not only from black people, but specifically of a uh, a black experience that is, you know, that doesn't just skip the plantation, right? It goes right through the plantation. It goes um, through a great migration. It's it's a it's a lot of very specific historical um, pathways, and so to see something like house music be divested from the people who, you know, within, within a generation, history, right, yeah. is wild to me. So. Really, it just started with us asking people, like, yo, can we get a code to give people who are African descendants, a te like, a half-off rate? Yeah. And it's pretty much been just that since we're just using the strength of our relationships yeah. um, to help people dance their cares away. Yeah, and feel welcomed and also be able to, like, I mean to celebrate all of that like journey and like cultivation right. of these sounds and spaces right. and to celebrate that rather than to like just swallow it and exclude the makers. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I really hope that we speak more and more and more. I know that we will, but this 
segment is just simply not enough. Uh, I want to ask you to share with our audience how can people support you? How can people support um, sure. Rave Reparations and or Brown Up Your Feed? Okay, I'm Mandy Harris-Williams and my Venmo is Mandy Harris-Williams. Convenient! <laughs> Um, and you can support me by following me on the internet um, at Ideal Black Female on Instagram. Um, and I do ask for what I want all the time. So when I need something, I will ask my community of supporters to uh, have my back. So stay tuned to that. And also follow at Rave Reparations on Instagram. And uh, yeah. At Rave Reparations, at Ideal Black Female on Instagram, and at Mandy Harris Williams on Venmo. Start there. And <laughs> I will also ask you to kind of finish um, with the question Margot began to pose, which is like, if you could look in the camera and also like share your name again and say, I support, and then fill in the blank. Okay. I'm Mandy Harris-Williams, and I support creative black femmes being represented and remunerated per the amount of cultural influence that they actually contribute, and not just the rate at which they've been valued per the post-transatlantic slave trade. Remuneration. Yeah, remuneration. Calling for it. <laughs> Get people paid. If you'd like to support Mandy's Patreon, please go to patreon.com slash idealblackfemale. Again, patreon.com slash idealblackfemale. Last time I checked, there's a $5 level, a $12 level, and a couple that are pricier than that. If you can swing it, um, it's well worth your money, I promise you. Thank you for listening to Tierney Talks. For photos and videos from the telethon, go to my Instagram, at tstar7. Also, follow For Your Art, at For Your Art your guide to art and patronage. For more information about For Your Art and all of my guests, check out the show notes. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by Tierney Finster. It was recorded and edited by Margot Padilla. Please let us know what you think of the episode. You can listen to past episodes of Tierney Talks on all podcast platforms. If you love the show, please rate, subscribe, or share with a friend. Or all three. Special thanks to Margot Padilla, Jess Caliero, Nico Karamian, Brian Johnson, Bettina Korik, Kevin McGarry, Kobe Krieger, all of my guests, everyone who tuned into the live stream, and all the others who made this installation possible. Until next time, XOXO.